0: Welcome to A Pastor
1: and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar, where we say the things you wish your pastor, or your
2: philosophy professor,
1: had said to you about God, spirituality, and the church.
2: Well, hello, friends. Uh, On this episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar, we're going to be considering fundamentalism. So we have titled this episode, Lovingly, I Kissed Fundamentalism Goodbye. There's a little reference in there for those of you who are paying attention.
1: Yep, and if you're old enough.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Randy and I are going to be discussing, sort of in a personal narrative way, our own histories with fundamentalism. We both would say that we used to be fundamentalists, and we're not anymore. Uh, So we're going to be sharing a little bit of personal stuff about ourselves and our journeys and how we came out of that and what it means to us.
1: It's going to be fun, but what we do around here, uh, we are going to beverage sample and taste.
2: And I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, I find it difficult to talk about fundamentalism without a whiskey in my hand. so this really works
1: Amen. out. Amen. Yeah. yeah. I got the first round. This is, um, we're going classic, standard, can't miss. If you give it a bad review, I don't want to be your friend anymore. This is Woodford Reserve. Now, you That's bourbon cool. enthusiasts might be rolling your eyes right now, but I'm just saying there is not a more reliable bourbon and I haven't even tried it yet, but I'm just about to, so I'm gonna yeah. get to the nose here.
2: If you're if you're rolling your eyes, then you've sailed past enthusiast and you're firmly in the snob territory. Absolutely. There, there's and good for you can roll your eyes out here.
1: Mm. It smells sweet. So oak nose. for those
2: of you who can't see Randy is currently performing what we lovingly call the Kentucky chew. Maybe you can hear it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If it sounds a little slurpy, that's what's going on. You pull it, you suck it over your tongue, and you just, it bounces over your palate, and you can really taste the notes of what we're trying to get here.
2: Mm. For me, it helps to try to take the air from your throat and move it back into your mouth a little bit. Can't say why, but it seems to work.
1: This is getting weird. A little bit. um,
2: Woodford is one of my all time favorite bourbons. It's probably, it's my go to. There's so much
1: oak in Woodford right here. I really feel like I can taste the barrel that it was aged in right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
2: the double oaked is their higher price point expression. Mm-hmm. And personally, I prefer this.
1: Same. It's yeah.
2: It's perfectly balanced.
1: Beautifully balanced. Got that caramely action going on. It's got the dark berries almost. And then it's got like the old antique mm-hmm. library book almost thing to it. You know what I yep. mean?
2: Yeah, it's got the the right sweetness that I identify with bourbon. I came Mm -hmm. to bourbon after Scotch, kind of had a backwards journey there. And so for me, um, bourbon is is like a dessert. It's associated in my mind with that.
1: As you said in the beginning of the episode, uh, we are going to be journeying into the world of fundamentalism and talking about our journey out of it. Both of us have grown up in that and been formed by it and also kissed it goodbye, as it were. So, can you first, Kyle, being the philosopher and the academic that you are, could you define fundamentalism for us? Because certainly, when we talk about fundamentalism, we're followers of Jesus. We talk about Christian fundamentalism. Mm. We're very familiar with it, but it's not the only kind or brand of fundamentalism. There's fundamentalist Muslims, and those are the ones that... uh, everybody, the caricature that everybody thinks of when you think of Muslims that is just a, a little minority within the Muslim world. There's fundamentalist Jewish people, there's fundamentalist atheists, mm-hmm. you know, sure. there's, there's fundamentalists of all sorts. So could you define fundamental, fundamentalism for us, Kyle?
2: Sure. So in the, the Christian context, or I should say the Christian American context, maybe, fundamentalism has a kind of specific historical meaning, which is not always what people intend when they use the word. So if you were to look up just in a dictionary, fundamentalist, you'd see something like the following, uh, strict adherence to biblical literalism uh, and maybe some isolationist social tendencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, re- the reason for that is because around the early 20th century in the United States, there was a movement that came to be called fundamentalism, and the reason that it came to be called fundamentalism is because of a specific book or a set of essays that were published in about 1910 called The Fundamentals, and then it had this fun tagline, A Testimony to the Truth, uh, so it nice. gives you an idea of how seriously they took themselves. Yep. This, this set of essays was by some pretty conservative evangelical biblical scholars who took a very literalist, very kind of narrow reading of the Bible, particularly certain parts of the Bible.
1: Strong inerrantists, that kind of thing. Probably a reaction against the Enlightenment.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and ended up taking some pretty strong stances against liberal theology, against what, we, what scholars would call the historical critical method of biblical interpretation, which means... You're treating the text of the Bible scientifically, and you're trying to study it like you would study any other ancient text. Uh, they They don't approach it from a perspective of faith, biblical scholars, they approach it from a perspective of historians or sort of secular scholarship. And that set of essays, The Fundamentals, was really influential, and it ended up creating or at least spearheading this movement within American Christianity away from certain expert consensus on several issues. So, things like the origin of the universe, how old is mm-hmm. how old is the physical universe, or mm-hmm. human sexuality, mm-hmm. or, um, I mean, various political issues, you name it. There's all sorts of these issues that uh, secular experts had sort of formed consensuses about, and the environment and what's happening to it, etc., And this group of evangelicals viewed those expert consensuses as being in tension with or in contradiction with their reading of the Bible. And so they sort of battened down the hatches and became kind of insular. Uh, And then this movement picked up a lot of political steam. And we could do a whole episode on, in fact, we will do a whole episode on on evangelicalism and and how some of that worked out. And so. In the sort of historical American context, that's what it means to be a fundamentalist. It's to be a certain kind of evangelical in that particular tradition. But the word gets used differently. And often the word means no more than somebody that I disagree with. It's used Mm -hmm. as a pejorative or abusive term. Mm -hmm. Um, So, a philosopher that I admire named Alvin Plantinga, one time he was trying to define fundamentalism, and he said... Often the word just means something like ignorant son of a bitch. Uh, so, someone whose opinions are somewhere to the right of my own is mm-hmm. what fundamentalism often means. And we want to, I think both of us would agree, we want to avoid that. Kind of, we don't want to use it in an abusive way, right? Because we identify with the community. We we say we were fundamentalists and it wasn't because I was an ignorant son of a bitch. <laughs> right. uh, there were some good reasons why I was. And there's also some really good reasons why I'm not anymore. Um, yeah. So, when when we use the term fundamentalist, we mean something like the following. A, a Christian who is uh, pretty conservative in their theology and who leans very heavily on a very strict literalist reading of the Bible and who approaches that in a somewhat dogmatic way, which means uh, they need it to be true. They need it to be um, that interpretation of the scripture is the the correct one, and all mm-hmm. competing interpretations are somehow dangerous or untrustworthy yeah um so that that's the kind of context we came out of and I think that's what we mean when we talk yeah. about fundamentalism,
1: yep, yeah, I mean uh as we talk about how we use the term fundamentalist um I do currently use fundamentalist as a as a derogatory pejorative word but I grew up in a fundamentalist family and still have close family members who are fundamentalist and who would consider themselves fundamentalist and don't see it as a dirty word. I remember exactly where I was, sitting with a close family member who I love, and we were talking about faith, and we normally don't talk about faith because it's a potentially volatile thing, and talking about faith a little bit, and uh, I asked this family member if they would consider themselves a fundamentalist, thinking it's a dirty word, and they said, actually, yeah, and I like the idea of being a fundamentalist, because a fundamentalist stands on the fundamentals of the faith. And mm. at that moment, I was both surprised, because it's not a attractive term for me, but also kind of impressed that, like, actually, I, I do stand on the fundamentals. And unfortunately, that inherently means that I don't, because I'm not a fundamentalist, you know, <laughs> um, uh, but we can get into that later. But sure. not all definitions of it are are awful. Mm. I'd love to hear... Your story, Kyle, of what your journey in fundamentalism looked like,
2: yeah, uh, when I was a kid i've been in church my whole life um, I, I was raised in the rural South Kentucky, which we consider it the South. people in Mississippi probably don't, but <laughs> in Kentucky, if listen you, to if you I in, mean you're in the south' you're from the uh, south. <laughs> and uh, so I was raised in a church denomination which and I didn't realize this until much later. Was actually a fairly liberal denomination, but it was in the rural South, and there aren't any r- liberals in the <laughs> rural South. So uh, it was the Disciples of Christ denomination, if anyone is familiar with that. And they they tend to be like if you go to their uh, general conference or whatever. You'd be around some people who are pretty theologically liberal, and so our pastor was trained in that denomination, and so his own personal views weren't necessarily very conservative or fundamentalist, but a lot of the people in the congregation certainly were, just because of geography, and my father was definitely one of those people. And so, I, you know, as a child, was very happy in this congregation. I didn't know anything about how it differed from any other kind of theological outlook. All I knew was we take communion every week, and everybody can take communion. And that's, the whole, that's their whole shtick. And over time, my father became less and less okay with that. Um, he, he became more and more conservative, largely as a result of listening to certain radio preachers and biblical scholars.
1: I should I just try to guess which radio preacher that was. Was it John MacArthur?
2: Uh not him specifically, but I think he was in the the sort of group of people. Actually yeah. a guy is one of those like uh, biblical prophecy guys named Chuck Missler. Uh, he had a radio program that my dad really liked, and my dad had this Schofield Study Bible, which is this oh uh, yep. this very dispensationalist kind of take on the scripture. So you know, it gives you the answer to any question you might have while you're reading it, and you just look in the footnote and it tells you what it means. Uh, and God. so, you know, he got really into this, and gradually was less and less comfortable at the church we were at, and so we shifted over to Southern Baptist. He remains, to this day, a kind of fundamentalist. I didn't think much of it. I didn't really know any better. To me, that just was Christianity, because I came of age in that environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're in fundamentalism, you don't realize that it is fundamentalism. It's just the church. I didn't even think to question it much, really, until I got to college. And as happens to many people in college, you take a few classes, and your professors say things, inevitably, that our intention with your religious upbringing, what your pastors believe. Maybe they even say things that your pastors warned you they might say. And I was always interested in being able to know the truth about things and be able to explain why I believe things. And so it really didn't take long for my own religious fundamentalism to fall apart. Realized pretty quickly that some of the doctrines they seemed to care a lot about, that their explanations of those things did not stand up to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the beginning of the end of my fundamentalism.
1: Yep, yep. Yeah, for me, um, I grew up in a house with a Lutheran dad and a Baptist mom. And both were, both sides of the family were fundamentalists in their own way. The Baptist side, particularly fundamentalist. And so, I mean, I grew up in the house where we were literally driving to school and we'd be singing, This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I mean, we would do it in round. It makes me throw up in my mouth just thinking about it, but also warms me strangely. So, I mean, I grew up in a world where I was, I would, my my cartoons were Superbook was the Old Testament stories, and The Flying House was the New Testament stories, and I learned the Bible and... From third grade on, I went to a a Christian school, and so I never was educated into the way of evolution and had to confront that reality. Creation was science to me, and uh, I, I had a very narrow, sheltered worldview. I remember sitting in our living room growing up. I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and the local news had a story about some gay men who were protesting something. And I still remember these men chanting, we're here. We're queer. We're not going away. And I remember being scared shitless, to be honest with you. I, just, I didn't know what to do with this idea of homosexuality. And I remember my parents reacting in some violent ways and angry ways and just had no space for it. And that was my upbringing. I just had very black and white world where God created the world and the Bible is literal and it is what it says and uh, is a very us-and-them world. That we lived in, the world was scary, and the non-followers of Jesus were seen as just dirty. Don't want to be around them. That was my world, very fearful and scary, and small and judgmental and uh, delicate, mm-hmm. extremely delicate. Um, and it all kind of broke further down the road.
2: Yeah, let's uh, let's let's bring Elliot into this conversation. Producer slash creative. Partner, genius, <laughs> genius, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, hey, you, yeah. you as well have, uh, or former fundamentalists. So you have a lot to contribute here. What was your experience there like?
0: If I if I spin my chair from producer mode and think about my religious upbringing, actually producer isn't far off from that either. You know, it was it was about being a, being a certain thing and having a certain. Output to my faith, which really was was just about how um, how how I looked, and how our family looked. My dad was a pastor of the Evangelical Free Church in a small Northwoods Wisconsin town of twelve hundred people. So something that's a part of fundamentalism already, this appearance that needs to be maintained. If you put that in the small town context, is amplified that much more. And so I was leading worship as soon as I was old enough. And part of our youth group and trying to invite people and leading see you at the poll at the high school and Bible studies. And these are just the things that as a Lund, our family did this. And I, I don't say that to dishonor that upbringing at all. It actually was a the, the biblical truth and the grounding. And that's part of the foundation that I still have. But I realized looking back that this was you know, almost like this manicured lawn of faith. With no unknowns and nothing that hadn't been considered and put in its place. And so as I stepped outside of that, my fundamentalism began to show some cracks. And that was because I had never been around people who loved Jesus and also uh, would swear, like sometimes for fun. <laughs> or or would drink or smoke or do these things that like around the, the Lund dinner table, these were bad things. Like for people who weren't following the Lord as opposed to us. And so, to see people who, who I wanted to be like, that really started to break me down and people didn't necessarily have to act the same way that I had always been taught to act in order to be Jesus followers. And, and so, that was my experience with fundamentalism and, and how it started to break down for me.
2: So, this question is directed at both of you. Was there a particular form of disruption? Was there a particular experience uh, or a particular conversation or something like that that started to crumble the house of cards, so to speak. For for myself, it was more of a gradual progression of a lot of really small things. I realized, for example, that creationism was not scientific. <laughs> uh, you know, I realized all these things um, and, and gradually came to understand that the kind of experts that my community had appealed to weren't really experts And over a long mm-hmm. period of time and several other experiences that we can talk more about. Uh, just gradually came to realize I wasn't a fundamentalist anymore, but it was never mm-hmm. like it a, a single intentional decision. Mm-hmm. What was that process like for for you guys?
1: Yeah, it was definitely a process, but there's a few milestone moments that that define that. One was just getting out of the Baptist or Lutheran church and getting into a little bit more of a um, I don't know. It was very evangelical, but still more open reality and in, in worldview in the church that I was a part of in college, and wanted to be a pastor, discovered I wanted to be a pastor, but within that, would have a drink every once in a while, because friends would, and didn't feel bad about it, and felt like I had to hide that from my family, and journeyed from smoking cigars to cloves to cigarettes, and then got addicted, and um, didn't feel terrible about it, actually, you know, but I had to hide it, even though my mom knew the whole time. But the biggest thing that really sucked me out of that fundamentalism was working at a restaurant where I was the only Christian person there, and my bubble was burst. I just didn't know what to do with all these people who were just the furthest thing from what I grew up in, but they would just happen to be amazing people. Salt-of-the-earth people who partied hard, but they were amazing, beautiful people. I remember having my my world shaken when a gal who was a server, we got off at the same time on a Friday night, and she said, "'Hey, Randy, you want to go have a drink?' And internally, I was like, what? A girl wants to have a drink with me. She must be hitting on me. Turns out she just wanted to hang out. She's <laughs> cool, cool gal. Um, the other thing, the other person that shaped that for me was this guy named Brad, who was very obviously gay. The first time you talk to him, you know that he's gay. And I had no experience with gay people. I thought that they all had HIV and that maybe if I got into too close of contact with Brad, I might get HIV myself. I started there and then observed what a beautiful, amazing person Brad was and became great friends with him. And then um, I remember this moment where we, after a shift, went and had martinis and talked about him and his sexuality and his world and me and my world and my understanding. And he was gracious enough to let me ask, ask him questions like, has he always been gay? And when did he find out? And if he could choose to not be gay, would he not be gay? And his frustrations with how hard it is to settle down and and have a family, and that's all he wants to do. That's what he dreams about. And talking about uh, his struggle with the culture and all sorts of things. And it just, in that one night of a couple of martinis and a conversation with Brad, my world just melted. And it went from black and white to colorful and confusing, but rich and complex. It went from simple cut and dry to anything but. That really was a catalyst for bringing me out of fundamentalism, seeing that the world isn't as simple and nice and neat and concise as I was raised to think it is, and I thank God for that moment. Elliot, how about you? Mm
0: -hmm. There was a point where I realized that fundamentalism wasn't going to be a big enough place for me to live happily and healthfully. And it was actually a moment in our marriage where we were already going through a lot, but I think we were just sitting and watching, like, some sad movie, like Where the Red Fern Grows or something. And I just, I, Grace turned to me, my wife turned to me and said, do you not feel this at all? <laughs> There's something wrong with you if you're, if you're not able to feel that. And I wasn't, and, I, and it was through other scenarios as well, realizing I just wasn't able to feel anything. And it was because of this, um this weight of shame that that actually bridged back to this fundamentalism it was being able to know truth be, and to have this responsibility for defending truth looking out at the world that i had also applied to myself in the form of of self-judgment self-loathing at at any at any sin or things that i perceived as being against God's will. And and so in that pain, I had just shut down and, and realized that this is the world I was living in, even relationally, not being able to connect, not being able to feel not only the shame, but the joy of connection and um, and the sadness that's appropriate in order to grieve with those who are grieving. And so I just turned that all off. And, mm-hmm. and that wound up being the kind of the catalyst to some work personally, you know, honestly doing going through counseling and starting to peel back these layers. It's not something you would right away associate with fundamentalism, but the judgmentalism that comes with fundamentalism had been so destructive inside of me that that it had caused some serious damage. And that was the world that I needed to fix. Um, It just happened to also involve dismantling uh, that judgmental stance towards the world and towards myself.
1: You mentioned, Elliot, which a good fundamentalist or recovering fundamentalist would, truth, right? And I've got, okay, I've got a bone to pick with fundamentalists <laughs> in, in many ways, but here's, here's the bone to pick I, I want to talk about now is this, this notion that fundamentalists care more about truth than any other branch of Christianity. First of all, I think fundamentalists idolize truth over and above God in many ways. Fundamentalism idolizes the scriptures because they call the scriptures truth, and, and it's a member of the Holy Trinity, which is in completely unhealthy. But secondly, fundamentalists kind of feel like we, have the, we are passionate about truth. We have the truth. We own it. We know what it is. We, we are protectors of truth, when really... What we find in the scriptures is Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is. And Jesus himself said that I am the truth. The truth is a person. The truth is not a, a, a bunch of ideas. The truth is not a literal interpretation of the scriptures. The truth is not a guidebook and a statement of faith on, the church, on a church website. I'm getting a little preachy here. But actually, the truth is a person, and his name is Jesus
2: for For any uh philosophy types that might be listening, and your hackles are going up at this usage of the word truth, uh fear not we are going to do an episode on uh, truth specifically, so stay tuned, piggybacking on your soapbox a little bit. It was specifically the desire to know what is true that led me out of fundamental How about that you know I mean it was wow. uh scrutinizing the assumptions. That had been given to me and scrutinizing the arguments for particular doctrines and points of view that ultimately led me to conclude that this was not a sufficient foundation for a religious faith, eventually, anyway. That and having a really good mentor figure who modeled for me what a different kind of Christianity could look like. I had a a good friend of mine still to this day named H.L. Hussman, who is a pastor now in Louisville. Shout out to HL. Hey, hey, uh, daylight church, Google it, check it out. And he, even though he was a little more conservative than me and kind of still is to this day, definitely showed me that there was, there was an alternative to either fundamentalism or atheism. (laughs) Mm Because there was, you know, there was a point and you guys probably experienced something like this too. Eventually you reach a point where you're ready to chuck the whole thing And if I didn't have a good model for what an alternative could look like, I might have chucked the whole thing. Um, But he and a few other people modeled for me, like, look, you can be uh, passionately invested in this and also simultaneously admit that you're unsure about some stuff. Yeah. And not pretend that you're 100% certain about everything all the time. And that, as a matter of fact, a a sincere religious faith doesn't need to be 100% certain about everything all the yep. time, and we can have serious conversations and serious disagreements and still uh, love each other through them and share a religious experience together. And If yep. I hadn't had that, I, I might not have stayed, stayed around at all.
1: Yeah, thank you, Lord, for HL. I mean, I, I can say pastorally, um, you know, I've been pastoring for, shoot, I don't know, 13, 14 years, and I've walked through countless faith journeys with people who, or faith crises with people who grew up fundamentalist and were introduced to the wrong or maybe even the right person who caused them to question their view on the scriptures or contradictions in the scriptures or whatever science confronted them in a, in a jarring way, whatever it might be, and they had a little doubt. Doubt snuck into their process, into their faith journey, and they had no idea what to do with it because they, they've been groomed in this world of fundamentalism that says, if one thing isn't true, the whole house falls apart. That is a really, really dangerous kind of faith to give a person because the world is just not that black and white and in in cut and dry, and it's frustrated me endlessly journeying with people. And by frustrating me, I mean also, like, I just love them so much. I just want to be like, you don't have to freak out if the Bible isn't absolutely literal. You don't have to freak out if inerrancy actually doesn't work out because Jesus is still alive <laughs> for crying out loud. So that's that's a, a fatal flaw to fundamentalism to me is I don't want to pass down to my kids a faith that is so delicate that if one little thing is out of whack about it and they, they kind of look under the covers and it isn't there, that the whole thing falls apart.
2: Yeah, in some ways, I think this is, a justified fear that a lot of fundamentalists have. Um, it seems to me there's a, there's an insecurity at the at the root of this approach to religious yes. faith, and that there's something right about it in the sense that once you start to question it in that way, yes, you might actually be led down a trajectory where you begin to question all of those mm-hmm. other things. I was (laughs) down that trajectory. And whatever form of faith you end up with will be a fundamentally different kind of thing than what you started with. And to that extent, the fundamentalists are correct to be afraid of that. But, you know, at the the end of the day, like, either you trust that God is able to handle that kind of doubt or not. Uh, Either you trust that reality really does reflect uh, your belief system or not, and if you, d- if you do really trust that, then you know follow the argument where it leads, and wherever you end up is going to be a place that is still compatible with communion with yeah. that God.
1: Yeah, it's good. So let me ask, where, where would you say? How would you describe your faith journey now, at this point in time? I started
0: with a really long list of things that I was sure of mm-hmm. in my faith, and. I thought that's the way it was supposed to be, but over time, it's actually become a, a much sh- shorter and shorter list as I've started to realize what the actual—I mean, it's ironic—is what's what's actually fundamental to faith in this triune God, and it's it's not a certain eschatological view, and it's not a certain way even of um, of seeing the the creation narrative or. Um, or, or of interpreting how, how we should be on mission in the world, it's understanding that there is a a creator God who sent his son to save us from sin. And, and now we get to be with him in life. And that's kind of the only thing that I've been able to cling to through this. And there, there are other things that I actually hope are going to come back into phase that I'm going to be able to, to once again, feel sure of, but that doesn't feel like a journey that can be rushed right now. It's been, more appropriate to to sit back and and hold loosely and let the ground shift. So yeah, I, I really I hope to be able to continue in this faith in 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 God and to have that type of trust. Uh, but I guess I guess to have that type of trust requires a loose holding of it as something that doesn't have to be coddled or protected. And that's much more the stance I've taken now than when I needed to protect that that house of cards. From uh, from getting bumped, it's good.
2: For me, um, if I had to describe the state of my faith currently, it would be something like a deep fascination with agape, and agape is the one of the Greek words for love, and specifically in the New Testament, it's the word that is used for divine love, the kind of love that God has for the people that He made the kind of love that Jesus has for his enemies, even while they hate him and torture him and crucify him. Nonetheless, he loves them. And this is really what has sustained me as a religious person is the fascination with understanding and experiencing this kind of love. And if I'm just totally honest, totally transparent, at this point in my religious journey, I'm pretty ambivalent about the rest of it. ambivalent in the sense of being like torn in in multiple directions sometimes to the extent that i sincerely doubt many of the things that are probably on eliot's list of fundamentals <laughs> did you know did jesus really rise from the dead is there anything after this life does god even exist that kind of stuff tuesdays i'm pretty sure fridays not so much and the thing that really keeps me going is this this really deep, sincere fascination, you, almost an addiction to understanding whether that kind of love is possible if we can practice it, if we can learn it, uh, where it's available. And I've had a, a few, like a handful of experiences in my life that you might call mystical or contemplative or something like that, where I feel like I, I did experience that kind of love and it seemed transcendent and it seemed outside of me. And that's that's what keeps me going. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced that kind of love in various human relationships as yeah. well. Um, and it I, at the end of the day, my faith at this point is a combination of sincere doubt, but also sincere hopefulness that the world really is as described in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And And when I can't bring myself to believe that it is, I rest on the hope that it mm-hmm. might be.
1: How about you, Randy? As my faith has evolved, which it certainly has, with each evolution, Jesus hasn't diminished. He's just gotten better. Um, My view of God, of the divine, has gotten fuller and richer and bigger. The love of God has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper, and I feel challenged by it. So for me, as my faith has evolved and grown, it's rooted me more in Jesus than my first simple self. So let me ask this, as we've talked about where we are and how do we deal with an ever-evolving faith journey. Kyle, what do you think is a healthy way to engage with God or hold our faith journey in a really mature, healthy way that's going to bring life?
2: Yeah. So let me start answering this question by saying a way that I I think you should not do it. <laughs> and this is the way that I did it for, for quite a few years. And that was to try to uh, explore every possible avenue intellectually that would allow me to hold on to my narrow interpretation of Christianity uh, to the extent of reading as many books as i could get my hands on and engaging in as many online arguments as i as i needed mm-hmm. to to try to force myself to be as confident about my belief system as i thought that i should be and for a while especially if you're clever you can be very successful mm-hmm. at that there there is something to be said for positive psychology, the power of positive thinking, right? And and convincing yourself of certain things. I got, boy, I got super into that. And for several years, I thought it was my life calling to be an apologist, a Christian, someone who, you know, professionally defends the faith, but from a very intellectual perspective, marshals all the arguments that you can to, to justify why the Bible is inerrant and doesn't have any contradictions and why each of these doctrines and our understanding of them is, you know, precisely accurate. And, and that, is the wrong way <laughs> to, to go about uh, recovering from fundamentalism or something, because, boy, there's so many dangers there, and I don't want to go into them all right now. We should have a separate discussion about that, but it's maybe the most pernicious thing.
1: H- hold time out. What does pernicious mean?
2: Yeah, it's maybe the most dangerous thing, Thanks the for most dumbing tricky me down. thing about certain forms You're welcome. Certain forms of, particularly evangelical Christian fundamentalism, is that because it has this tool of apologetics, it gives you a kind of a framework for anticipating and explaining away any kind of resistant, inconsistent information you might encounter in the world. So I go to college and I take a class, and the professor says X, Y, Z, and that disagrees with what my pastor said. But my pastor warned me that they were going to say that, and then they already gave me a reading list, uh, you know, just in case they say this, here is what you should say, or here's how you should interpret it, so that your mind is never actually focused on getting an education or learning what the expert has to teach you, it's focused on refutation and holding on to your prior point of view. And that, that's the way I, I went about it personally, and that was deeply mm. destructive. For me, uh, a healthier approach has been to focus first on relationships with people and trying to form mature, healthy, loving relationships with appropriate boundaries Mm -hmm. and all of that and letting the religious agreement stuff play second fiddle to that. And it's not that it's not in the picture ever. It is, because if you're a religious person and you're gonna have a deep friendship or a deep romantic relationship or a deep family relationship with someone, being religious is part of who you are. And that's gonna to have to come into play eventually. So it's not that it's you know, it's not that we bracketed it out altogether, it's that it's no longer the most important mm-hmm. thing. It's not given primary place anymore, and we don't approach it as though if we don't agree about this, it's the end of the goddamn world. Uh, We approach it as though uh, agreement about this is secondary to us actually having a loving relationship with one another because we both agree that probably God cares a little more about that than he cares about us agreeing about how old the earth Mm -hmm. is or whatever. Um, So that's, that's the kind of general approach that I've developed to this sort of thing. Uh, And what I found, interestingly, is that when you approach the relationship first, the other stuff becomes a lot more manageable. The disagreements that might be inevitable now take place in the context of trust. And we're willing to listen to one another in a way that we wouldn't have been if the entry into the relationship was, let's, you know, hash all this out immediately.
1: Yeah, that's good. It's really good. How do we see... God and our faith journey in a healthy way, I would say, first of all, for me, it looks like my faith journey is not something that needs to be protected. It's something that should be enjoyed. That's a very fundamentally different perspective on my faith journey. Another one is that it's a dangerous thing to think that I've arrived at truth. The scriptures are authoritative to me, but to think that I've arrived at truth and I have a uh, full understanding of who God is. It's a very arrogant position to hold rather than to say I'm on a journey towards truth that I'm going to be on for the rest of my life and I'll never arrive until I stand before truth and look him in the eyes when I, when I see Jesus. So thinking back over um, everything we've said about
2: our journeys out of fundamentalism, I know all of us still have family members and good friends who are fundamentalists who are still very much in it. Some of them struggling with it, some of them proud of it. How how should we relate to these people? Do we consign them to uh, the you know trash bin of history? They're just behind the times, and uh, they're a minority, and so we're just going to move on without them. Do we view them as the other, the the you know the the enemy to be fought and and defeated, or is there a better alternative? Uh, so how, how have you guys approached this personally with respect to fundamentalists that you, you're mm-hmm. still in relationship mm-hmm.
1: with? Um, all sorts of ways, basically. I have confined them to the trash heap of history, and I have just tried to ignore the fundamentalists and done all sorts of things. But then I go back to what you said, Kyle, in the beginning of um, your, where your faith journey is, and you said it's this obsession with an addiction to agape love. And then that begins to challenge me again. Because if God is love and if Jesus, the fullest expression of who Jesus is, is agape love, then I have to choose to love my family members who are fundamentalists. I don't get a choice in that, actually. And um, and that's helpful. It's it's easier for me to love my family because your family is something that you, you know, you can say no to. But, man, that's hard to do. My family is my family. And so I don't have a ton of fundamentalist friends because you can choose pick and choose your friends, and I don't choose a whole lot of fundamentalist friends, but the fact that my family, I can still love them, and I can still appreciate them, and I can still see beauty in them, even though I disagree fundamentally with their fundamentalist beliefs, tells me that maybe I should open my world up a little bit more to people who um, I see as having a smaller, more confined faith journey than myself, that I condescend upon, you know, and I've been condescending through this uh, podcast, it checks me a little bit and says, I don't know if that's what agape love looks like. Agape love probably looks like making room and space for people who I disagree with and, and, and just finding the beauty in them a little bit more. Now, I know this is a really pastoral, churchy answer, but um, I think this is a more Christ-like answer. And sometimes that looks like not talking about things like politics or faith. And that's best. That's choosing love. That's choosing a person over my agenda and loving a person for who they are rather than what they do or don't believe in, choosing to see the beauty in them. So that's my reality is I have relationships that I just can't go there with because it's not constructive. I I won't love them as much as I I would as if we just don't go there. And hopefully, I hope and pray that we will get to a point where we can talk about that in a generous, loving fashion. But not right now, we can't. And that's that's okay for me, and it's actually enhanced our relationship and given me a way forward. So that's how I do it,
0: or how I try to, I should say. <laughs> it's not that easy.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, it seems like often words aren't the right way to get this across, yeah. um, to, to break down fundamentalism. It's uh, it's more so, uh, yeah, living it out in, in a way that That shows a better way and so it's it's looked different ways with different people but it it just feels like something that needs to be shown rather than told
2: yeah that that's excellent um so that really dovetails with with my approach to this as well or I should say my ideal approach to this because there's the way that I would like it to go and then there's the way that it sometimes often does go. The way that it sometimes does go is we have a weird argument on Facebook and then we don't talk to each other. Oh, no, Facebook. Um, there's a lot of avoidance, right? I mean, in some of my relationships, it's gotten to the place where uh, yeah. kind of a conscious decision. Uh, if we're going to continue to enjoy each other's company, issue X just doesn't come up. And sometimes I think that's where you have to go. That can be the most responsible Decision to make, uh, given the dynamics of a relationship, but for me it's not ideal. Uh, and so, how I think about the ideal, there's some philosophy for you if you're if you're ready for this. Um, so, a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard talks about a concept that he calls indirect discourse, uh, and this is a way of communicating without saying directly what it is that you want the other person to believe or understand. Uh, And for him, it's really bound up with his whole approach to philosophy. He wrote under pseudonyms most of the time. Uh, So most of the works that we have of Kierkegaard are under different names. And sometimes he will say things in one work that will directly contradict something he says in another work. And sometimes in the same book, wow. even, he'll write under different names and argue back and forth with these characters. And so, it's very hard mm-hmm. to pin down. Major issue in Kierkegaard scholarship is what the hell did Kierkegaard think about anything? <laughs> um, and, but he does this very intentionally because he believes his view of faith is that you cannot get to Christian faith intellectually. Mm-hmm. It's not possible. He was an anti-apologist before there was ever such a thing as evangelical apologetics. Uh, Your reason is going to only ever get in the way of you having the encounter with God that is necessary for sincere Christian faith. And so, if you're going to lead somebody to that kind of encounter, and let's be honest, when we're dealing with our fundamentalist friends and family, that's what we're doing. I mean, our hope, anyway, I think is that we want them to experience what we experienced, to use another philosophical metaphor, leaving the cave and seeing the sunshine and figuring out what a freer, more sophisticated faith can be like. We want that for them too. But approaching that intellectually, you know, shooting arguments at them, trying to get them to see that their position is irrational, probably not the way to do it. Uh, And so you have to figure out a form of communication that is indirect. And that can take a lot of different forms. And for me, the form that it tends to take is building a relationship of trust around whatever I can find in common with that person, even if it's just, we both like Woodford Reserve. (laughs) That could be the whole basis of our relationship at the beginning. But building some trust first, and then also secondarily, not having an agenda for where I need this to go. And that that requires a lot of self-work, getting to the place where I'm genuinely okay if this does not lead to their conversion, if this does not lead to their departure from fundamentalism. My goal is this relationship and loving them well and modeling for them what I think Christian faith uh, looks like to me or what I think agape looks like. Uh, and I don't need it to necessarily turn out a certain way. Uh, and that's just something I have to work on for myself. But in my experience, when you approach a relationship that way, uh, it's much more likely to end up in the place that you would hope that it would, but indirectly.
1: A couple of years ago, I was sitting on a beach on a Northwoods of Wisconsin lake. Just a beautiful place and what I consider just paradise this beautiful place and I was on a bonfire it was probably midnight or later and just by myself and there was no moon and the sky was just full of stars and I could see the Milky Way everything was just brilliant and I remember just it just took my breath away and I remember thinking how could I ever think that I could wrap my hands around you how could I ever think that I could know you fully it just seemed silly in that moment. And that was the actual, I felt closer to God in that moment than I had in a lot of different worship experiences or enlightened times. And uh, that's kind of what my journey's been like. God has just gotten bigger and better and more beautiful. I expect that in five years, my my vision of God and my, my understanding of God is gonna be bigger and better and more beautiful. I just expect it to happen. I expect it to change and to morph, and to grow, and to get better, because God has never been more beautiful and attractive to me than he is right now. The person of the Christ has blown up my world, um, and the scriptures really are responsible for it, but many of us just don't want to pay attention to what the scriptures actually say about who God is in Jesus Christ. So uh, that's where I am. I am. I'm, I'm enthralled. I'm all in. I'm more in than I ever have been, um, and that doesn't mean I don't have doubts or don't think that this might I might be, you know, getting paid to mislead people. Sometimes I think that. But more often than not, I'm just I'm all in on Jesus.
2: If you find this valuable, if this seems like something you want to follow, if you would subscribe to the podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts, maybe leave a positive review, a rating, tell your friends.
1: We love to be loved.
2: Your grandparents, your cousins.
1: Absolutely. uncles.